Morning, Glory, and evening, Grace America. It's Hugh Hewitt, and this is the hour that many of you have come to say is your favorite hour of the radio week, the Hillsdale Dialogue, when I join with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and one of his colleagues today, it's Dr. Kenneth Calvert, uh, to discuss one of the great episodes in Western civilization, be it literature or art or music or history. Uh, But today, uh, they're both back, and we began a study of the early Christian years uh, last week, and we're going to pick that up in a second. But this is a time of anniversary, Doctors Arn and Calvert. The 50th anniversary of the March on Washington was last week on September 10th. It's the 200th anniversary of the Battle of Lake Erie. It is the first anniversary of the massacre in Benghazi, and of course, a dozen years since the massacre of 9/11. But today, today, September the 6th is the 70th anniversary of the visit of a great man to a great university. You feel that we are your worthy brothers in arms, and you will know that we shall never tire nor weaken, but march with you into any quarter of the world that may be necessary to establish the reign of justice and of law among men. That, of course, is the voice of Winston Spencer Churchill, then prime minister of a world of a nation at war and besieged in a speech called The Price of Greatness is Responsibility. Dr. Arne, I hope you are commemorating today at Hillsdale. I wrote about this at the Weekly Standard. I wish I hadn't on that. Yeah, of course we are. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is a terrific. Let me, let me read this speech. I'm sure you studied this speech with Martin Gilbert. There are four paragraphs in it that I want you to apply to our current situation, Larry Arndt, to Syria. They read, twice in my lifetime, Winston Churchill said in Sanders Theater, 70 years ago today, the long arm of destiny has reached across the ocean and involved the entire life and manhood of the United States in a deadly struggle. There was no use in saying we don't want it, we won't have it. Our forebears left Europe to avoid these quarrels. We have founded a new world which has no contact with the old. There was no use in that. The long arm reaches out remorselessly in everyone's existence, environment, and outlook undergo a swift and irresistible change. What is the explanation, he says to the president of Harvard, Mr. President, of these strange facts and of what are the deep laws to which they respond? I will offer you one explanation. There are others, but one will suffice. He pauses and he goes on. The price of greatness is responsibility. If the people of the United States had continued in a mediocre station, struggling with the wilderness, absorbed in their own affairs and a factor of no consequence in the movement of the world, they might have remained forgotten and undisturbed beyond their protecting oceans. But one cannot rise to be in many ways the leading community in the civilized world without becoming involved in its problems, without being convulsed by its agonies and inspired by its causes. If this had been proved in the past, as it has been, it will become indisputable in the future. The people of the United States cannot escape world responsibility. Although we live in a period so tumultuous that little can be predicted, we may be quite sure that this process will be intensified with every forward step the United States makes in wealth and in power. Not only are the responsibilities of this great republic growing, but the world over which they range is itself contracting in relation to our powers of locomotion at a positively alarming rate. 70 years ago, Larry Arn, he said that. How relevant is it today? Well, of course, Churchill was a genius. And, uh, you know, he. I, I, I looked up. I had a feeling you were going to ask me about this. So I looked up, by the way, two quotes from Churchill that run a different direction. Uh, on May the 9th, 1938, Churchill wrote, This is no question of resisting dictators because they are dictators, but only if they attack other people. 
Then, in a more famous speech in the United States, the famous Iron Curtain or Fulton or Sinews of Peace, uh, 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 Sinews of Peace speech, given on March the 5th, 1946, it is not our duty at this time when difficulties are so numerous to interfere forcibly in the internal affairs of countries which we have not conquered in war. But we must never cease to proclaim in fearless tones the great principles of freedom and the rights of man, which are the joint inheritance of the English-speaking world. Now, you just, you just read a quote from Churchill during the Second World War, and I just read one from just before in relation to the Nazis and just after in relation to the communists, and they seem to cut in different directions. Yeah, they do. Wow. And, and I think I know what unites them. And uh, Ch- Churchill, in the middle of the first, uh, the first World War, resigned his job and left uh, in the cabinet because he said, and, and he stood up in the cabinet room and he slammed his fist down, which he was not at all given to do, and he said, Those brave young men dying 10,000 a day have a cause. They do not need you for that. They need a plan. So what Churchill thought, and I think this is demonstrable and easy to prove, is that we need a plan. What are we going to do there, and what are we going to get for it? And what we're doing right now instead is we're just posturing like crazy. And so what I would like to see is... Some, you know, I mean, I I will confess, I used to argue with the second Bush administration about this. I said, you're going to build a free nation in Iraq, are you? And they said, yes. And I said, how long is that going to take? And they said, well, they want it, don't they? And I said, is that what you think it takes? Because, you know, Churchill was a colonialist, but not in Iraq. So... The the funny thing about this whole thing is, who's our friend there, and what do we get when we help them? And I must say, I can't find an answer to that question. Now, I'm going to turn the floor over to Dr. Calvert here for a comment, but I I will say this is a conundrum, because on the one hand, we have Marco Rubio voting against intervention. On the one hand, you have your Churchill quotes, and I have my price of greatness is responsibility. And since he delivered this at all, my alma mater, it must be the better speech. Uh, <laughs> but we have two Kagans, Tom Cotton, General Keene, Bill Crystal, Michael O'Hanlon, Max Boot, urging that we buttress this very weak president from the outside. And then we have so many smart people on the opposite side. So Ken Calvert, what would the ancients have us do? Well, the ancients, that's a good question, and it would depend entirely upon which ancient you're talking about. If you're talking about St. Augustine, who you will be looking at in a couple of weeks, Augustine talked about the notion of just war, and there were definitely some some uh, restrictions on just war. If you want to go back and talk uh, about Constantine, who we're going to be looking at soon, uh, Constantine would do uh, what is in the best interest of the Roman Empire. Uh, not even necessarily of Christianity, but what's in the best interest of the empire, its stability, its continuity, and the peace uh, within the empire. You know, Constantine, uh, in many ways, knew what he was about, uh, knew what needed to get done, uh, much more than some of the leadership that we we experience. And, uh, and therefore, uh, I don't know that there would have been much dithering over it. Uh, Dr. Arn. Yeah, well, I you know, Steve Hayes is in the Wall Street Journal today discouraging 
support for this resolution. He says what we ought to do is topple and set up a friendly regime there. Yes. And, you know, if we and, – and if that's a goal, and, you know, first of all, that's a real goal. I'm going to remind you about uh, – remember who Edward Lutwak is? Who yes. was a very important and good guy in the Reagan years. And when we had a bunch of guys in barracks in Beirut and they got blown up in the Reagan administration, uh, uh, Lutwak said that there are two hard policies and they both make sense. And there's one soft policy and it makes no sense. And a hard policy is go to Damascus. And a hard policy is come home. Leaving a bunch of soldiers just as a present there is not. It's a soft policy. So I think Steve makes sense. And I think if you're going to do something, do something real. It's in the Wall Street Journal yesterday on the front page, not the editorial page, with quotes from the Obama administration that they wish to make strikes that do not change the balance of power because they don't trust anybody in the rebels and they don't trust Assad. Now, the journalist, maybe he's wrong, but he's quoting sources inside the Obama administration. And, you know, in other words, we're going to go kill some people and blow up some property without an attempt to alter the situation because we don't trust either side. That's what the Congress is being asked to support. It doesn't make a blind bit of sense to me. It, that does not. But Cotton's argument is we can, through the legislative language and through the vote, steer that that incredibly feckless and incoherent policy towards the goal that you articulated. Churchill's pounding his fist on the desk, demanding 30 seconds to the break. You are skeptical of that. Well, I, m- mostly what I think is I think we made a mistake in Iraq. I think that we sh- you should fight your wars in a way so that you're stronger when you emerge from them than you were when you went in, if you win. And what we did in Iraq was we expected things to unfold in a very different way than they have. And by the way, I give them credit. Iraq has worked better than I thought it would. Is it a stable ally over time? I doubt that. When we come back, we return to our march through history with Dr. Larry Arn, Dr. Kenneth Calvert of Hillsdale College. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues are available at hillsdale.edu or at hughforhillsdale.com. Stay tuned. 21 minutes after the hour, American Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway for the week. All of these dialogues are collected at hughforhillsdale.com. There is a link prominently featured at hughhewitt.com. And you can also get all of the wonderful material that Hillsdale makes available through its ongoing effort to educate a free people at hillsdale.edu. Uh, my guests this week, Dr. Larion and Dr. Kenneth Calvert, are, are immersing us in how we got from Rome to a Christian Rome. And to get there, though, last week we surged forward through 200 years of post-Jesus uh, history. But now we've got to go back. And Dr. Calvert, it's important that we not lose sight of our friends, the Jews, as they, as they are destroyed as a people and dispersed. What happened and, and how do they come back round again into Western civilization and thought at this point? Well, that's a, a complex uh, story to, to attack, um, but let me, let me try to put it in a nutshell for you. Um, 
the Jews returned from uh, from exile uh, under the Persians, and under Persian rule, they had a certain amount of freedom and a certain amount of uh, ability to to express their their uh, religious and even to a certain extent political will, and that was good. Uh, they were the the Persians were conquered by Alexander the Great, and under Alexander the Great, uh, the Jews continued to have a certain amount of of, um, of freedom. Um, they had a, an independent kingdom for a time, uh, from 165 to 63. It was the last independent Jewish kingdom in the Holy Land until 1948. And so you see, they have this, and, and, and then they came under the Roman rule in, in the 60s uh, uh, BC. So you see, they have this experience during that time of being a people under uh, polytheistic under pagan rule, a people who worshipped one god, worshipped uh, were, were monotheists, worshiping one god, and that experience forged um, uh, for Judaism uh, a kind of sense of of living in a foreign land, along with their exiles uh, earlier in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. But uh, under these these foreign rulers, they had this experience of living under under polytheistic or foreign rule. Eventually, they rebelled twice against the Roman Empire, and they were dispersed. Uh, they they dispersed into the Roman Empire, into Europe, uh, as far east as India, uh, into south into Africa, and this idea of a diaspora um, became a, a very strong part of the Jewish experience and. Uh, certainly in Europe, uh, they met some persecution uh, there. Uh, and so this idea of um, of a people living among other people in other nations was, was very much a part of the Jewish experience, at least until uh, uh, Zionism in the 1940s when they uh, they uh, established a new state. Now, we are, of course, in the middle of the High Holy Days, and yes. it's, it's mm-hmm. the Sabbath. And Dr. Arn, I'm sure you've got lots of students at Hillsdale observing these these High Holy Days. But what does this diaspora do to the West? I mean, I've got some obvious answers. It sets up many dramas and many intellectuals and many different uh, uh, incredible stories of redemption. But it's it's unique in human history. That's right. And, uh, and you know, you have to go back to the difference between the Jewish and the Christian faith with the ancient faith of the ancient cities, because the, and the Jewish is the first. If the uh, after uh, Alexander sacked and destroyed Thebes, Thebes was gone, and its gods were gone, and its people were they're not Thebans anymore. But the Jews were stubborn, and they had a god who said he was everybody's god, and never mind that his place. He hadn't, you know, he, he, he had been a god who'd been mobile anyway. Never mind that his place was gone. He was not gone. And so when these Jews are, are, are scattered, they carry a message, and it goes everywhere. And, uh, you know, to, to, and, and they, 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 you know, if you think of Western civilization as the confluence of the streams that flow from Jerusalem and from Athens— Different things, but both universal in their import, both covering all human beings with a message of good, then the Jews spreading carries that message. And, uh, you know, Ch- Churchill, we've been talking about Churchill today, he, he says once he, he was a great, he was a Zionist and he was a great lover of the Jews, represented them in Parliament uh, often in his life. And he said once, he said, wherever there are three Jews, 
There are two prime ministers and one leader of the opposition. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I'm thinking of in the notes to prepare for this. You talked about your friendship with Martin Gilbert and his friendship with the greatest archaeologist warrior, I guess, ever. And I was I was in the tunnels next to the temple two years ago in the summertime thinking this is the most extraordinary place on the earth. And and, and, and it was uh, Dr. Calvert destroyed, utterly destroyed, only to be recovered again. That's correct. It was it was destroyed in the second great rebellion of the Jews against the Romans, um, uh, the the Bar Kokhba revolt of one thirty two to one thirty five, and it was at that time that uh, that the the entire city was destroyed. The temple had been destroyed in an earlier revolt uh, in seventy A D, but Jerusalem remained as the center of of, uh, of the Jewish population. But yeah, the the Romans. Um, uh, in, Made the city into a a, a Roman city. Uh, it made they made it into a a, a pagan city and drove out uh, the Jewish population. And Larry, on your friend Sir Martin Gilbert, with whom you labored for so many years on the Churchill biography, the one that continues at Hillsdale, he lived not far from that place. Correct. That's right. It uh, you know it, it's it's I'll just recur briefly to that discussion we started with. If you look at the strategic situation in the Middle East. Iran is the worst problem, Yes, and its influence with Russia and China is toxic, Yes, and we need to be figuring out what they're doing and doing something about it. But the great hope in the region is the free country in the region, the country where an Arab, for example, can vote freely, write what he wants in the paper, serve in parliament, dissent from the government, hold property securely, have a trial by jury. And that country is called Israel. Mm -hmm. And this Israel that we're dealing with, modern Israel, which I happen to spend a lot of time there with Martin Gilbert back in the 70s when I was young. um, You know, it's a very extraordinary place because it's, you know, one of the oldest scenes of Western civilization. And there are walls that are part of the old city wall that reach back to the time of King David. And Martin Gilbert happens to have a flat. But he doesn't anymore, but he did back then have a flat that's across the hill, across the wall from the old city of Jerusalem, and you could stand on his porch and look at all of that. And, you know, modern Israel, you know, when we think about these wars that we're in right now, think about how modern Israel got founded. Because this guy, Yigal Yadin, who was the excavator of the Dead Sea Scrolls and of Masada, a great scene of action in this Jewish revolt down by the Dead Sea, one of the greatest archaeologists in the world, was also a military commander in the 1948 war where Israel won its independence, you know, sort of on a shoestring and bailing wire basis. And then he was the commander in 1967 that took the old city of Jerusalem from the Jordanians. And one night he came over to dinner at Martin Gilbert's house. At that moment, he was the acting prime minister of the country. And we were sitting in a place where his troops had gone over for that in that battle. And that means it's a small country, and a few guys did a lot of really great things. When we come back, we're going to talk about those few guys, those great things, and how Judaism impacted the West. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All of them are linked at HughHewitt.com. Stay with us. 34 minutes after the hour, American Hugh Hewitt talking with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, his colleague, Dr. Kenneth Calvert, also on the faculty of Hillsdale College in this week's Hillsdale Dialogue, which is really quite the mosaic of the pressing and immediate and the ancient and immediate. And uh, Dr. Calvert, we were talking about 
at the beginning of the show, the region and how it's aflame. And, of course, that's not any different. Larry Arn just mentioned Masada, where I've been. It's really one of the more extraordinary places as well. But it is a region that has never not been riven by wars and terrible, terrible things. Any reason to think that that will ever be other? Well, that's a good question. Uh, It was a place of conflict for centuries all through the ancient world because not necessarily because of its resources but because of its strategic location it's located there in the ancient near east on the mediterranean sea and it's the place where the highways to africa and to egypt pass through so it's not so much its resources as its strategic location and everyone wanted to control it babylonians persians romans uh, you name it, uh, the, the Byzantines and later uh, even the Arabs when they, when they emerged uh, out of the Arabian Peninsula. And so uh, I don't know that we can say that it's going to get any better, but I think that Dr. Arn made a, a significant point here that on this very unique location, geographic location, you have a stable peaceful, forward-looking liberal democracy established uh, uh, as the state of Israel in 1948. And again, it's it's the first independent Jewish state since uh, the second century BC. It's a remarkable, remarkable political um, uh, entity. Larry Arn, the uh the friend, our mutual friend Bill Crystal just returned with Elliot Abrams and was speaking to me last week on the air. He said, everyone's very calm in Israel. And I, I think it's because of people like Yadin, and, and I loved your story about wandering around the city and showing up for dinner at Martin Gilbert and in walks the acting prime minister of Israel and, and just defying everything and having won all these battles. They're, they really don't get flustered. Mm. You know, that's, um, they're, they're very tough people, and thank God for them. You know, I'm, I'm looking at a map right now. I was inspired to go look by what Ken just said. If you look at the map of the of that area where the Mediterranean, the the eastern edge of the Mediterranean, that's where Napoleon and the Tsar fell out, where their compromise couldn't work anymore, because it's the crossroads of Asia, Europe, and Africa. And if you look at those countries there right now, and see, this is the way we should be talking about this thing, right? We know that Assad is a murderer. The question is, did he use chemical weapons, and is that the trigger, or are we thinking about how we win in the long term? Because north of Syria is Turkey, and that's an old friend of ours that's become shaky. And south and west of Syria is Israel, and we and, and Egypt is in turmoil, right? We should be looking at all of this to make the best plan we can around the people who are the best friends we have, and that starts with Israel. And instead, it's a lot of moral posturing, specifically without a plan and maneuvering for political advantage. Now, I've been telling everyone all week, and I have it in my hand again, the new foreign affairs, who is Khamenei, the mind of Iran's supreme leader by Akbar Ganji, who spent a half dozen years in Iran's worst prisons. And he and Michael O'Hanlon, who is very slow to say such a thing, just said flat out, this is an evil regime in Iran. And that's really... Assad's just an extension of Iran, uh, and Hezbollah's just an extension of Iran. And if our friends in Israel think that this is the time to push back, are, are, uh, what what do you suggest, Dr. Arn, happen if no one in the Congress except Tom Cotton and, and a few, because it's not really a lot right now, the people I look up to, um, are willing to say, take them on directly now? Are, are we becoming Great Britain under Stanley Baldwin, an analogy I've used a few times this week? Well, 
uh, you know, it, 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 prudence is a funny thing, and it, it depends upon all of the circumstances, right? So I don't think that we've gotten stronger since we evaded, invaded Iraq. And I think we might have done if we had invaded Iraq and toppled that regime and got out of there more quickly. And, and I think the principle that we adopted, that if you break it, you own it, I don't think that's the right principle. Because it isn't right to go into such a place unless they have provoked you. And if they do provoke you, and Iraq had provoked us, then you can go in there, and if you leave it at least as well off as it was, then and you, and you leave yourself safer, safer, that is a legitimate action. And what we do is we, we go around there and we expect people, like in Egypt, what are the choices? A military government or the Muslim Brotherhood? That's a tough choice. Uh, but not, not, not really. I hope it, I, I think it's easier than that. We come back one more segment of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. We've got to cover Maimonides in, uh, in eight minutes when we return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu, for all the amazing free offerings they do to educated free people. Dr. Ken Calvert on the faculty, also headmaster at Hillsdale Academy. And we are talking about, and we're going to, we're slow. We're, we're, it's like the Russian spring. Uh, and we are moving forward very, very slowly, but that's okay. Dr. Calvert, uh, in, the, in the course of Western civilization, what does a, an educated person have to know about Jewish thinking? I mentioned Maimonides, and there's that wonderful history by Paul Johnson, the history of the Jews that I repaired to. But what do you tell your undergrads they've just got to read and know? Well, first of all, what Dr. Arnn said a little bit earlier about their understanding of God and who he is as a God um, throughout uh, the universe and throughout the world, an understanding of God that's, that's much larger than just the local and the national. And that is, that is a very important uh, aspect of, of Jewish thought. Now, you mentioned Moses Maimonides, who was a philosopher in uh, the high Middle Ages, actually, in the 1200s, very, very important um, Jewish thinker. And and I think during that time when you had some ability among Jews, Christians, and Muslims to sit and to think together and to talk together, uh, it didn't last long, but there was a time in which that could happen. And Moses Maimonides was one of these, uh, really a contemporary or near contemporary with Thomas Aquinas and some others of the age, and really bringing together Aristotelian thought, bringing together um, uh, much of what had been preserved from the old Greco-Roman period and was now coming back into Europe and being revived. Uh, much of that because of Christian study, because of Muslim study, and because of people like Moses Maimonides. Now, Maimonides tried to tackle this whole question of who is God and in relation to the Christians and to the Jews and to the Muslims in a wonderful book called Guide to the Perplexed. And I think we can all you know, say that we need that kind of book. Uh, but it's a, it's a wonderful book. He spent uh, most of his life really saucing out this idea of who is God in the midst of all of this and uh, spent most of his life uh, both in Spain and then in, in Cairo, but really represents uh, that idea um, of, of what uh, Judaism and Jewish thought bring to the West and to the world and this understanding of who is God a sovereign God in relation to human life. Uh, yeah, it's interesting, uh, Dr. Calvert, you mentioned Guide to the Perplex. It made me think of Walker Percy's wonderful book, Lost in the Cosmos. And, right. 
And Walker Percy once said, anyone who denies God has to explain to me the Jews. And Larry mm-hmm. Arndt, I, that's why I guess Western civilization really cannot, we can't catch up to Constantine, which we'll do next week, I hope, and, yeah. and get back to our outline, without having sort of filled in this gap, this unusual, extraordinary people with a special promise and a special mission who are celebrating their high holy days right now. It, you, you can't, it's like unwinding the DNA molecule of, of humankind. When, when you read Moses Maimonides and Thomas Aquinas, his contemporaries, you are reading great moments in the intersection of what we know by faith and what we know by reason. And these are the chief components of the civilization of the West. And they come together in that part of the world that's so troubled right now. Of course, I often, with my friend Dennis Prager, talk about anti-Semitism. So in four minutes, because that's all the time both of you two great brains should need. Why then anti-Semitism with the contribution so incredible, Ken Calvert? Well, that's complex. And part of it has to do with the fact that there's division between the Jews and the Christians over over who Jesus is. Uh, there's a division between the Jews and the Muslims over who Muhammad is. And these are these are significant uh, divisions uh, among those folks. Well, those are the divisions playing out, Larry Arnn, in Syria. Those are the it's the same deal with the same sort of savagery that is so often marked the civilizational conflict. Well, the great realization of the great thinkers and the founders of America is that there is not any reason for conflict between Christians and Jews or between any faith that believes that your conscience is your God and your relationship with God is your own. So there's no, there's no reason for it. And here's another thing to understand. If you've ever spent much time in the Middle East, which I know you have, what you'll find out is the Arabs and the Jews are relations. Right. They're right. both Semitic peoples. They're the children of Shem. And so, you know, when you, I, I, I have a really great memory because I, I used to go in the 70s for many weeks. I was there and I remember watching some Arabs and some Jews arguing on the price of fruit in Jericho, a beautiful city, which it's dangerous to go to right now at night. And and I, I looked at I was I had a guide and uh, there was b- both Arabs and Jews standing near me. And I said, you guys are too much alike. That's what's wrong with you. <laughs> they, they were using the same gestures, right? Well, the po- isn't the point that we need in the Middle East and everywhere else a politics that doesn't slaughter people over their relationship with God? I think the point is that, that they need leadership. There. They've got it in Netanyahu, but I go back to where we began, Winston Churchill, 70 years ago today, the price of greatness is responsibility. And the United States has a role there that it's got to play, Dr. Art, right? Well, that's right. And, and you know, you go read. I mean, we'll, we'll have a session on Churchill one of these days, and I'll just tell you some stuff about that guy because he was really good at it. And you can't he, – he would want there to be a workable plan, and, and he would not want to risk anything in the absence of that. And I can show you a hundred places – where he spoke like that. You got any hope at all that this team, this president who's in Russia tonight, isn't that odd? He's in Russia tonight, uh, can come up with such a plan? Or are we 39 months without a chief executive, a republic without a CEO, not intended by the framers? I don't think it's their, their intention to form such a plan, and so they are not very likely to do it. 
All right. Next week, we return to the Hillsdale Dialogue, and we will be with Constantine in 285. Well, we're going to finally get to the second page of the outline. Dr. Kenneth Calvert, Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, thank you both. Hillsdale.edu, remember, I'm trying to find someone out there that will build Larry a chapel, like Sidney Poitier and Lilies of the Field. we got to put a, a church right in the middle of that a memorial hall to all the wonderful people of Hillsdale. And uh, we need him a chair in rhetoric as well, so he stopped taking it out on poor radio hosts left and right. We have to have endow that chair so we teach him how to be gentler with people. And all of the Hillsdale dialogues are available at HughForHillsdale.com. HughForHillsdale.com. There is a button at HughHewitt.com as well, which makes it for a shortcut. Go there, go now, and come back next week for the next Hillsdale Dialogue. Stay tuned.